Hi, Anne. This is Shana Gifford from the High Seas Mission, NASA's one year in simulated space. Your first question, how did I become involved in this mission? Is it any, have I ever done anything like this? That very much weaves into the question about my medical background. So my medical background is that I actually started out as a neuroscientist. I started out as an astrophysicist <laughs> way, way back in the day. That was the first thing I did was astrophysics. I worked on a satellite called HESI for ESA, actually H-E-S-S-I. And it still flies, although I believe they call it R-HESI. In a tragic accident, it actually got mostly destroyed during a launch test and we had to rebuild it. I got a, it was christened with a slightly new name after that, but you'll find it if you look up HESI. So I was an astrophysicist, specifically a cosmologist, and then my father, who himself uh, was a neuroscientist, uh, had a stroke, and then my astrophysics advisor, Mark Davis, had a stroke, very um, and very closely um, uh, linked in time, and. It just, it sort of seemed like a sign as I sort of watched Mark recover and my father that I should really be doing something to make the world a better place. And I, I absolutely love astronomy and astrophysics still to this day, obviously, but I felt like I should be doing a service. So I became a neuroscientist, which was essentially the same kind of deal, sort of instead of looking out for the tiny signal and the overwhelming noise, you look in for the tiny signal and the overwhelming noise, and that's neuroscience. So I was a neuroscientist for many years, and it came to the point where I needed to start to choose between an MD and a PhD. And probably two or three years into being a neuroscientist, I had, just because I enjoy uh, challenges, I had become an EMT, so I was a paramedic. Um, at night, and I'd been doing that for a few years, and kind of found that I enjoyed patient care more than I enjoyed computers. I love neuroscience. It's, it's very interesting and really does make a difference in people's lives, but I decided that I would rather have more hands-on time with people, so I, I went to medical school instead. And while I was in medical school uh, in Grenada, West Indies, I went to St. George's University in the Caribbean, which is a common thing for paramedics, army medics, nurses to do is they go to St. George's. So it was really all I knew um, uh, in terms of, you know, the difference between one medical school and another medical school. I was a non-traditional student. I'd had all this other experience. So I went to a non-traditional school. And while I was out there, I started a medical charity called the Humanitarian Service Organization, HSO. And we did a lot of field medicine, a lot of knocking on huts. And anyone in there want a toothbrush? And who needs their blood pressure checked? And people really liked it. So that was while I was in medical school. It was very rewarding. But in addition to that, of course, I still loved space. So I wanted to do both. And after I graduated from medical school, I uh, took a hiatus and I went and did some bush medicine, as you all call it. I was a field doctor um, for a music festival in New Zealand called Illuminate, uh, which is in Abel Tasman National Park, South Island, New Zealand. Went up to Nepal, did a little bit up there, and really came to the conclusion that I wanted to do space medicine. Now, here's the thing for, uh, for your readers. There is no such thing as a residency per se in space medicine. There are some fellowships and some trainings that you do uh, after you've already become a physician. So if you want to do space medicine, you become whatever you want to do, 
preventative rehab, internal medicine, EM, and then you pursue one of these three that are available in the U.S. for non-military. And those three, there's one at the Mayo Clinic, um, there's one at Wayne State, and there's one at Johnson Space Center. Now, I was one of the three candidates up for one of these fellowships at Johnson Space Center, but that year they didn't take anybody. They took no one. So the question then became, what should I do now? I still want to be a space doc. I can just go into general practice, but instead I started looking around for some way to actually practically practice space medicine. And there aren't very many, uh, as you might infer. Hopefully there'll be more in the future, and I think there will be. But it turned out that the best chance that I could find to actually practice space medicine, apart from joining the astronaut corps itself, um, going to work at Johnson Space Center, was to actually, to, to, and a chance to actually go into the field, as I like to do, um, was to become a simulated astronaut. So that's what I did. I applied to become a simulated astronaut on for high seas, the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, for the, the previous mission, High Seas 3. Um, and the timing was wrong. The timing of my application, I applied and, and they wanted me, but the timing in my own life didn't work out. And so um, instead, I went and did a simulated mission at Johnson Space Center. And I was a simulated astronaut for an asteroid mission called HERA, H-E-R-A, which was a lot of fun. And then I became a simulated astronaut here at high seas. So that's sort of the long story in a nutshell. I was an astrophysicist. There was some family and, and personal tragedy that led me to become a neuroscientist. I became an EMT and decided that as much as I love the brain, and I do, I love people more. But I still wanted space. I still wanted to be a space doctor. And I love doing field work. So being a simulated astronaut and the space doc on a simulated mission sort of perfectly summed up everything that it was that I wanted to do. So that's the answer to your first two questions. Let's see. Moving on to the rest. How long have I been on simulated Mars? So I'm not on real Mars, of course, but rather simulated Mars. Uh, for almost exactly six months. This is day 184, mission day 184. And the mission will last another 182 days or so from August 28th, 2015 to August 28th, 2016 is the duration of our mission. I can, without breaking confidentiality, because I've been uh, given permission by the crew to talk about the sort of ailments we've had here. Everyone, of course, is very healthy. And space medicine, you know, is sort of the art and science of treating healthy people and keeping them healthy. So most of what I do is preventative care. And that becomes very interesting as the house doc, because these aren't just my patients. These are my crewmates and my flatmates and my friends. So maintaining a clinical distance, it becomes very, very interesting. As a field doc, it's very different than being a house, a house officer in a hospital or even a doctor in a, in a family clinic in a community. You literally live with the people you treat. So, you know, I may see things that, you know, normally as a doc might cause me to cringe, you know, put down those Cheetos, stop eating all that cheese, get away from the bag of candy. But you know, they're in their own home. And to a certain extent, they have the right to do what they want to do. And they are healthy. So I don't need to uh, be constantly on their case. So most of what I do, as I said, is, tr is, is sort of preventative care. I sit down with people, I watch their weight, 
you know, take blood pressures. We do have some issues having to do with our EVA suits and gloves. People tend to get rashes from them. Uh, people slip and fall on the lava. And this will happen in any expedition, uh, Antarctic expeditions, up in the Himalayas, this kind of thing happened a lot. And it will happen on Mars because people are going to be out and about doing EVAs, extravehicular activities. So most of what I treat is secondary to EVA, you know, sort of orthopedic, um, secondary to pressure or humidity from the suits, rubbing abrasions, contusions, mild lacerations. And then there's just sort of the ongoing care for chronic conditions. You know, astronaut types are very outgoing. They're very outdoorsy. They like to jump out of planes and climb up mountains and, you know, hurl themselves off of things. So we have some, you know, low level but chronic things that do occasionally come up. So that's it. It's sort of a, a binary situation where you treat low level chronic things that come up from time to time and then um, orthopedic slash trauma stuff that happens in the field. If someone has a life-threatening illness or injury, this is question five, um, we are allowed to leave Mars, yes. We dial 911, and if everything is favorable and the helicopter is ready to scramble and it has gasoline and the weather is permissive and there's a pilot available, it would be here within the hour, and that would be the fastest way I would evacuate a patient. We've actually practiced a medical scenario. Um... And it was filmed. I filmed it. I'm also the crew journalist for the BBC. It should be on Stargazer Live in the next couple of weeks. Check the BBC schedule for Stargazer Live. And you should see us practicing the scenario, a medical scenario in the field of decompression if someone falls and breaks their helmet on Mars, not on Earth, obviously. How we would check them and evacuate them and strap them to a board and all that other stuff. So there's certain things that we can do here. That leads into your next question. What medical equipment do you have? So I have some field rescue equipment. I, when I came to high seas, I did a big survey and sat down and looked at everything that I had. And I have a scoop um, so I can strap someone to a board and get them out. I didn't have a collar, though. I didn't have a C-spine stabilization collar. I've gotten one since. Um, there were no. I brought a LAC kit with me, and I have a few more now. Um had some basic first aid equipment, general ace wraps, cold packs, um, bandages. I think I have a list on my blog um, of things that I can treat. <laughs> but I can treat pretty much all basic household type injuries and some field type injuries. You know, sprains, strains, burns middle to minor lacerations. Um, the real trouble is pain. If any of these, you know, if a dislocation occurs, I can relocate probably, depending on the kind of, of dislocation. Um, but the pain secondary to the burn, the lag, the dislocation, I don't have a lot of meds in house to treat pain. I do have, I just have basic over-the-counter meds. And then of course, um, I brought up with me some, um, some lidocaine in case I do need to suture, but that's it. It's not a long-term solution. So I could do a block, relocate someone's shoulder or hip or God forbid knee. Um, but then controlling the pain after that would be the real challenge. And I have medical support on the ground, just as you would, as you do in the International Space Station, just as you would on Mars. And medical support on the ground can appear they, as a hologram, quote unquote, and that happened in the second mission, uh, medical support had to come up and they did not have a doctor in house. 
Um, this is actually the first high seas mission to have a doctor in house. They had no one in house who could stitch a lack, so he came up and uh, he st he stitched that up. And that's Dr. Joseph D'Angelo, a colonel in the U.S. Army, currently on deployment in Kuwait. So I'm pretty much holding down the fort here. Anything that I cannot handle, Anne, I'm going to call 911. It's if it's beyond my capacity to treat, it's going to have to go at least to urgent care, if not to a to a to a stage one trauma. Uh, center. So my ability to dial and my willingness to dial 911 is significant because if it's beyond me, I want it in the helicopter on the way to the hospital. Question seven, do I have a pastoral role? Do people come to me for advice and comfort? Sometimes. And they're, they're more than welcome to do that, of course. But we actually have, as you do with all space missions, um, psychi psychiatric services. We have a psychologist who's actually a former member of a previous mission, and he is there for everybody to check in with. We all checked in with him near the beginning of the mission, and we'll be checking in with him again. In my experience in other simulated missions down at Johnson Space Center, NASA, we talk to the psychologist as often as we talk to the medical doctor. I know the concerns that happen on these missions are largely psychological, not physical, because we are so healthy. So um, we have a lot of support mental health support as well, although so far no one has needed it. Number eight, do you have another role in the mission? Am I taking part in research? Yes. So like I mentioned, I am also the crew journalist and uh, I do the bulk of the filming. I blog extensively. I write extensively. Um, and that was actually my first job uh, was I was a journalist and I was a science journalist and that was before I even became an astrophysicist and a neuroscientist. I've been a journalist for 20 years. <laughs> it's a long time. It's a very long time. That's the thing I've done the longest. After journalism, the thing I've done the longest is research. Um, and I started out actually in psychology research at the same time that I became a uh, astrophysicist and did astrophysics cosmology research at Berkeley. So while I'm here, I'm doing a wide variety of research studies, probably seven or eight of them now. God, um, everything from um, tracking caffeine use by the crew. I built an electricity producing bicycle. And I can actually hear someone pedaling right now. Maybe you can too. You pedal, it's a normal bicycle. And I hooked it up to a treadmill motor and it just generates energy. And the energy sits in some, some batteries, like car batteries. And we have a, I have a little inverter set up with a plug and an extension cord. And people can just come along and plug in their small devices. So I track how much people pedal on that bike. Um, I do a little microbiome study where I'm sampling um, the crew. I'm, and we're wondering if people's biota... If, if their external microbiology becomes more similar as we live in a small confined space together. I'm running a study with another member of the crew on um, entertainment and stress and how the, the leisure activities we do impact our stress. I'm helping um, one of the investigators um, run his virtual reality study and adding some physiological measurements to it and that's going to be really interesting. Um, pretty soon we're going to be starting up another couple of studies on um, occupation and how people spend their time. So it's kind of an occupational therapy rehab study. And uh, I'm writing a repetitive stress injury study with a company that does um, repetitive stress injury preventative software called Remedy Interactive. And um, 
yeah, that's what the crew architect. We're designing a uh, suit from Mars with Johnson Space Center and RISD Rhode Island School of Design. So the answer to your question is yes, <laughs> I'm taking part in research. We have very busy, very long days here. Between the three hats that I wear, I am never, ever without something to do. Question number nine, have I undertaken any space travel? Uh, not, nor, not as yet, as you would say, not as yet. Um, I have cousins that work for both Convergent Galactic and SpaceX, so if I don't become an astronaut myself, I will hopefully go as a tourist someday. Uh, now, question number 10, would I be interested in going to Mars in reality? Um, yes, although I don't believe that I would have any need to be the first, second, third, or fifth person on Mars even. I would be perfectly content to be the 50th. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful thing to do and it's a fantastic adventure. It's going to be very difficult, very challenging, and quite perilous. So I'd like to see us develop better field medicine technologies, better com compensatory mechanisms for zero gravity. I'd like to see us evolve a bit more technologically, medically, culturally, and socially and then go to Mars as a society. And I'll go then once the technology exists and it's as safe as it is to do. It's, it's you know, safety is sort, of an, is sort of an illusion. You can't do things without impunity, with impunity, without the possibility of danger. But there's having an established track record of a safe, sane system. And I'd like to see that in place, ideally before I go to Mars. But hey, if I have to go before then, I have to go. Question number 11, what is the most difficult part of your mission, both in professional and personal terms? Professionally, medicine was not designed to operate in a vacuum. And I have not been alone in practice ever until now. I mean, even when I was a bush doctor in New Zealand, there was a pediatric nurse and a couple of medics around. This is it. And that's not difficult it doesn't make necessarily practicing difficult. It makes being a doctor difficult because you just don't realize until you're alone how much we talk to each other. Doctors are a collective. We're a collective mind. We take collective action. We think collectively. That's how we are. That's how we've been trained. And so as, as much as I love being in the field and operating out on the edge, I like to do so with other physicians in their company and it is it is difficult to be the only doctor in simulated Mars, the only doctor on the planet, as it were. But that's the way it's going to be, because it's so difficult and expensive to get people to space. You're never going to send two doctors, right? Um, so it's it's about learning how to be the only medical person, which again, having two parents who are doctors and having been an EMT for a decade has is not something to which I'm accustomed. And uh, personal terms. It's simply difficult to be away from family and friends and not be there to support them in their lives. I've been there for them as much as I can, and that's always the goal, right? That's always the challenge, whether you're on Earth or not, is to be there for the people who need you. So that challenge is simply compounded by distance and my inability to pick up a phone. But that doesn't stop me from sending them videos, sending them voice messages like you and I are having right now. So it really taps into your creativity and requires you to be very diligent and very deliberate in expressing your support for the people that you love. And I think it's actually been a very good practice for me and for everybody else. We'll take away the lessons on how to be 
that kind of good supportive person. That's one of the things we'll take away from this mission. Oh, what's the best part? Getting to do science all the time and discovering new ways to approach problems and just being one of the first people to go do space medicine in the field for a year. Um, I think I may be one of the first. Um, certainly, um, Kel Lindgren was up on the ISS for, I think it was uh, 10 months maybe. So he certainly precedes me there, but I'm going to be here for a whole year and discovering all kinds of strange issues that have to be addressed. Like, for example, when you're on a, a long duration mission, where do you treat patients? You don't need a medical bay most of the time, so you might not build one into your first very small structure. Space is at a premium in space. And yet when you need to treat them, when you need privacy and the facilities to do so. And what I've been doing is treating people in my crew quarters. <laughs> There's nowhere else to do it. And that may be the answer initially. We may, we may be very much back to old-fashioned medicine where you just you do house calls I may be treating people in their crew quarters wherever it is they sleep that's where I'm going to treat them because that's where we have privacy and I can set my stuff out and have a little bit of space or maybe part of the bio lab will fold and convert into a patient care area you know I don't know but that's one of the things that we've come to reckon with here as well you need me to take care of you okay let's let's go find the space so it's been a real a real adventure in just in general, but certainly in practicing space medicine. And it's been an honor and a privilege um, to serve with people who are making a difference and are, are setting a path for Mars and laying the groundwork for humanity to go wherever it wants to go. And to be of service to them has been really very special. The aim of the entire mission, we've found a lot of things that would be useful to people in Mars things about how much to exercise, what kind of foods to bring, how to recycle your waste, your food waste, your, your excrement, um, what the plants like, you know, plants need nutrition. There's no nutrient source on Mars, but there's people and we convert the things we eat into a nutrient source. Um, about growing bacteria on Mars and entertainment and how much interaction people need and how much is too much and about the rhythm and timing of the way that people sleep and wake and all these other things. We've learned quite a bit about um, group interaction and all kinds of stuff that I can't talk about in more detail. A, because these aren't my studies and I'm not as knowledgeable. Uh, and B, because they haven't been published yet. Um, what are the main things to consider health-wise about the trip to Mars? What would be the main challenges for a doctor on real Mars? So for question 14... It's going to depend if by the time we go, if we have found a way to compensate for microgravity. In other words, do we have functionally artificial gravity? If we do not, then we're going to have a lot of challenges and a lot of problems. Um, with the 1-2% to bone loss, uh, large bone loss uh, for every month spent in microgravity, by the time you get to Mars, the shortest transit is 9 months and you've had muscle atrophy, you've had increased cardiovascular load as all the fluids from the lower body migrate upwards, the heart assumes the sort of balloon-like configuration, you have increased intracranial pressure, a lot of weird things happen, and then you get to Mars and you, you're back under gravitational influence. And I'm very concerned that if we don't have um, some sort of small amount of gravity, 
uh, en route, we're going to land and be invalids. I'm not sure we're going to be able to function. If you look at people who are in space for nine months, when they come back down to earth, they're not ready to put on a suit and go into the field and do field work. They're not physiologically capable of doing that, by and large. I think with maybe a couple of very, very rare exceptions, people need to rehab. So it would be nine months in transit, land on Mars, try not to break anything, try to stand up, rehab yourself back to condition, then explore, then come back. So, and, and then microgravity, of course, has a lot of other problems, high occurrences of nephrolithiasis, high occurrences of headache and backache and people not wanting to eat because their, their nose is stuffy and all kinds of just unpleasant things. So really it depends. Are we still dealing with microgravity as a number one problem or have we fixed that? Then we'll be dealing with other things. So I really just want to know about gravity before I answer the question. The main challenges of a doctor on real Mars are going to be a psychologically being the only doctor on Mars and having no one to talk to in real time about medicine. And that's very lonely for us doctors and, um, a limited amount of tools, very limited. And in a way it's terrifying. You know, I don't have a pharmacy or a lab or <laughs> a nursing staff, um, or any sort of diagnostic equipment. I think when they go, they'll probably have ultrasound with them, but what else? Are you going to bring an x-ray um, system? Are you going to bring an MRI? You know, are you going to bring a CAT scan? Of course you're not. So what it's really going to do is, is cause people to go back to very good basic medicine. That's what field medicine is. Good basic primary care, preventative medicine, and primary care and it's really basic it really is I mean I came here with a leather satchel and uh, a stethoscope that was given to me as a gift from my colleagues when I went to medical school my colleagues at a medical clinic I worked at and uh, blood, beep, blood pressure cuff spignomenometer and um, a reflex hammer you know I showed up like one of those doctors that used to come on the carts you know after you set the cart to go fetch the doc and they would bring the doc back you know an hour or two later it's really how, how you kind of arrive in the field and that's what the doc on Mars is going to be like you know he or she will have a few more tools a 3d printer to maybe print up some drugs and that's something we have to work on is how to grow drugs and then 3d print them because you don't know what you're going to need and what amount you're going to need it in even if you bring it when you leave it will be expired before the the three-year mission is up so the main challenges of being a doctor in Mars is going to be going back to very basic medicine limited amounts of, of tools and drugs and trying to figure out how to make that limited set of resources work which is something people do nowadays, something we did in the Caribbean a lot. It makes you a very solid doctor. You get very good on your basics. Question 15. When the mission ends, what will my advice be to my successor? Oh, gosh, do I get a successor? That's very exciting. <laughs> like I said, I've, there's never been um, a physician before on the mission. I'm not sure there will be again. But my advice to that successor would be, get good at your basics. Get good at remembering what medicine is really about, which is looking, listening, feeling, asking, and watching and waiting. And that's what we do. 
We look, listen, feel, ask, watch, and wait. And if you think about the sign of the of Western medicine, the sign of the caduceus, we, we don't exactly know the etiology of that, but one of the speculated sources of it is the doctors that used to come around in Africa to try and cure guinea worm. And when guinea worm pokes out of the leg, you have to grab it and wrap it around a stick. And you can only wrap it and turn the stick a few centimeters a day. If you try to turn it more than that, the guinea worm breaks off and results in a terribly painful cellulitis, which can be life-threatening. So you just keep showing up. You keep showing up every day and turning the stick. You turn it a little every day, and then you talk to the patient because the patient is scared, and they have a worm in their leg, and there's a stick attached to it, and they desperately want it over with, but you just assure them, I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm here for you. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to keep coming. And that's sort of the essence of who we are and why we do what we do is to be there and in a way I think I wrote in my Anne article it's kind of a dream come true to have all your patients under the same roof with you I mean every single person for whom I'm responsible medically is within earshot (laughs) I have access to them 24 hours a day it's really incredible to be able to provide that exquisite level of medical care to these people it's an honor it's a privilege and it's an excellent exercise in good medical practice so if I had a successor on the high seas mission or in in real life it would be be prepared to be that doctor who is always there always on call I don't get a day off in space you just have to reckon with that you are always on call you're always going to be there and there are blessings with that and curses with it there are risks with it and benefits with it But if nothing else, it is a tremendous experience. You'll never have another one like it. And enjoy it to the best extent that you're capable of and share it. Tell other doctors back on earth what you're going through so they can understand it and remember that you're not alone. None of us are. And that's it. (laughs) That's all I think. Yes, it's questions 1 through 15. Take care.